Greetings, dear listeners. A real treat for you today. We had Matt Continetti on the pod this week to talk about his new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. It's a terrific work of history by one of America's smartest conservative writers, balanced, fair, introspective, and insightful. Shadi and I start the conversation talking about the role of ideas in politics and end up dwelling on the oversized role that foreign policy played in shaping the course of the right in America. In the bonus episode, for paying members only, we go deeper into the question of populism with Matt. Is, Shadi asks, the Republican Party still committed to democracy? As always, to get access to the full episode, please become a paying member at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. As always, thank you for your support. On to the show. Matt, welcome. Um, obviously, we're here to discuss uh, your new book, uh, but uh, you know, much more than the new book. Uh, I, I think there's just a lot of overlap uh, and disagreement and discussion to be had. And the sort of like Venn diagram between where like me, you and Shadi come down on things. But let's, I guess, <laughs> get started on, on just the question of um, – I think the, 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 the thing that struck me most about the book is the, uh, the role of ideas and I think how, how strongly you feel that the role of ideas uh, is important to, to politics, if, if that's correct. Um, why, how, how come you, you chose to write the book in the way you did uh, at this at this current moment? What were you trying to sort of get at um, in this excavation of the conservative movement? Well, uh, one of the things I wanted to communicate was that a lot of the debates that are currently roiling the American right are not new. And in fact, uh, they have precedence uh, throughout uh, the past hundred years. And... Um, when you when you go back into the the record and you look at the the way that these debates over America's role in the world or um, over um, what attitude uh, the right should take toward authority and uh, centralized power, um, you begin to also to see the connection between ideas as expressed in the pages of little magazines uh, and public policy as enacted by elected officials. And so the book uh, is really, for me, a synthesis of intellectual history and political history, showing the ways in which intellectuals uh, responded to political events, uh, but also the ways in which politicians interacted with intellectuals uh, in order to um, advance agendas. And then more recently, the ways in which kind of the intellectuals in Washington, D.C. became detached from the broader mo movement um, that they had thought they were uh, guiding and directing. Is it fair to say that you're one of those intellectuals, maybe just for people who aren't familiar with you, how are you coming at this in terms of your own personal and ideological orientation? I, I have to say I was very impressed by just how fair you were in discussing all these competing ideas within the American right. You try to be fair to every side and give them their due, even if you probably deep down don't like them. But ultimately <laughs> you are, <laughs> ultimately, I mean, you're a protagonist in this, I don't want to say war because it's not quite a war. You guys are still all together 
under what we call the right. Um, but there is a lot of conflict and tension internally. And you obviously want to see an outcome, which you get to ter- towards the end of the book. So maybe just lay mm-hmm. that out for us, how you sort of play this role as both um, a researcher, but also as someone who's invested in the outcome. Sure. Oh, well, um, I guess the way to start to answer that question would be um, to say that, you know, I've been in Washington now for 20 years, and uh, all of that time has been spent uh, inside uh, the American right and uh, working for institutions uh, associated with uh, the conservative movement. Uh, my first job after I graduated from college was at the Weekly Standard magazine. Uh, eventually, I rose to the position of opinion editor there. That meant that I wrote the editorials uh, most weeks. Um, I then started my own publication, the Washington Free Beacon, which is a uh, kind of conservative investigative journalism outfit. And then in 2019, I moved to the American Enterprise Institute, where I work uh, today as a senior fellow, mainly because I was pursuing the question of how the American right arrived at um, the 2016 election, the rise of Donald Trump. So um, my views are made clear uh, regularly um, uh, in my writing uh, for the Washington Free Beacon, for National Review, for Commentary Magazine, and for many other publications. When I look at this book, uh, I want to see a work of scholarship uh, more than polemic. And so uh, I tried to investigate that question of how did the American right arrive at 2016? Where is it in 2020 and where might it go tomorrow uh, from uh, as a dispassionate and detached perspective as possible? And as you mentioned, uh, toward the end, I do kind of, you know, lift the curtain up a little bit and provi- provide readers a view of where I think the American right uh, should uh, turn. Um, but uh, for me, it was more teasing out this ongoing relationship uh, between um, elites, intellectuals, uh, elected officials, policy analysts, and the grassroots, the populists, um, who uh, are many in number and have become more and more influential in Republican politics over the last 15 years. But so I guess that gets back to the what I was sort of found most striking about the book, um, but I think Shadi put his finger on it. Would you say, I mean, I think the book is incredibly fair and incredibly rich in excavating this history. I, I, I came away actually uh, much improved. You know, I, I, I knew the history in very broad strokes, but not in such detail. And, and the, the sort of kaleidoscope of personalities, and even as they pop up today, you know, the, the, the heritage is, 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 really, is really spectacular to sort of uh, behold. But is it fair to say, though, that, that um, as you know, while you're excavating this, you have a belief in, in the power of ideas. Even when you were answering the, the, the previous question to me, you said, you know, how, how the, the intellectuals and the elites um, who thought they were the controlling, who thought they were the controlling the movement and shaping the movement sort of lost control of it. In reading the book, I, I sort of came away with, with a, a different appreciation than I feel that maybe you're coming from, which is, the the role of ideas in politics um, 
is 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 unbalanced from what we intellectuals like to think it is in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you say that, Demir, um, it strikes me that um, there's ideas and the role of ideas in history, and I do think ideas play a significant role in history, um, mainly because ideas are what you know uh, motivate many people in the political arena. Um, that there's also events. And I guess uh, maybe one other theme of my book is the role that events play, the, uh, the contingency of history, the almost accidental nature of it, um, that these um, elections happen, uh, uh, wars happen, scandals happen, um, things don't go as planned, uh, the, pre- the, the preparations don't match uh, the endeavor, and the whole landscape is overturned. So um, in that competition between ideas and events, uh, events may matter more uh, by giving ideas an opening uh, to see themselves expressed. And just uh, the example I'll give is um, the career of Ronald Reagan, where um, you know most histories of the American right really center on Reagan. Mine takes a different tack and tries to just include him as one character among many. And, you know, one of the lessons I draw from that narrative is uh, Reagan wasn't inevitable. Uh, Reagan ran uh, for president in 1976. He challenged the incumbent, Gerald Ford. He uh, was on the verge of withdrawing from the race when a kind of a last ditch effort by uh, Jesse Helms in North Carolina salvaged his uh, candidacy there. He then goes on, um, on a, quite a, uh, a winning streak and is able to enter the 1976 GOP convention uh, competitive for the nomination. It eventually does go to Ford, of course. And uh, there's a real question about, is that the end of Ronald Reagan's career? Um, he was, uh, by that point, you know, 66 years old. Um, so uh, it was really the, the ensuing events uh, the the experience of the Carter years um, that I think opened up the possibility of Reagan's return and made also Reagan a more um, palatable choice for the electorate than he would have been 10 years earlier or even four years earlier. So when you say, Matt, you, you mentioned historical accidents and um, I, I, Demir, I don't know if I'm making up this quote, but I seem to recall something where someone in a British accent <laughs> says, events, dear boy, events. Yes. Did I just no, imagine Harold, that? Harold Nichol- no, Harold Nicholson, I think the British <laughs> statesman once said that. Good okay, to remember not, the accent, I'm, Shadi. That's important. Yeah, but. I didn't want to, I didn't want to do like a proper British accent <laughs> on the air, but okay. So, History, accidents, events. I don't know if you'll agree with this interpretation, but I came out of the book thinking to myself that out of all the people who have influenced the trajectory of the Republican Party, one of them is Osama bin Laden. That if 9-11 hadn't happened, we could have imagined a fascinating counterfactual history of what the Republican Party would have been or could have become. And I don't know if you intended to emphasize that kind of dividing line. I certainly come at this with my own 
biases, and I'm inclined to think of 9-11 as rather decisive in this regard. But it is really, there really is a stark reminder that before 9-11, Bush was a completely different president with a completely different set of objectives. He, um, he, he was more of a foreign policy minimalist or realist and was very skeptical of ideological av- adventures abroad. And of course, he had much more of a domestic focus on what might be called compassionate conservatism. And he still did after 9-11. I mean, com- compassionate conservatism didn't go by the wayside, but Bush himself became much more of a foreign policy president and saw himself that way. Um, and then, of course, the story continues that the Iraq war and its failures become decisive in how the Republican Party shifts towards a more, let's say, America first or even neo-isolationist view, where there is this profound skepticism about what the U.S. is capable capable of abroad. And I'm just wondering, I mean, like, how how much do you think 9-11, and I'm sure that this was also important for you, I think we're more or less the same age or close, 9-11 and its aftermath was formative for me, being in D.C. in the early to mid-2000s. And I, I assume it was somewhat central to your political evolution as well. Oh, uh, for sure. Um, well, uh, a couple things about 9-11. Um, the, the first is that the um, elements within the Republican Party that uh, advocated uh, foreign policy restraint or even uh, neo-isolationism were already present there. I mean, in a way, uh, you, you allude to it, uh, Shadi, in, in, in your question by saying that, you know, pre-9-11 Bush was um, more of a realist. Um, he, you know, kind of disavowed nation building during the 2000 uh, campaign. Um, he was, in fact, under uh, heavy criticism in the first eight months of his presidency from uh, uh, institutions like the Weekly Standard, more hawkish institutions, over his um, defense budget and also the way in which uh, his administration handled the uh, spy plane incident with um, China in the spring of 2001. So those elements are always there. Um, but you're right, though, that um, 9-11 defined the Bush presidency. Uh, and it defined it in, uh, again, unanticipated ways. Um, uh, Bush really did junk most of his domestic agenda. I mean, once once he got No Child Left Behind passed, and then uh, the Medicare expansion passed, uh, he, it was not a very uh, forward-leaning um, domestic agenda. And it got even more screwed up in a second, as I'll detail. But um, he was mainly concerned with the wars that he that he started uh, in Afghanistan and uh, in Iraq, and then the global war on terrorism, and then, of course, uh, d- um, his freedom agenda of democracy promotion and advocacy of human rights. Um, th- things could have gone differently, I think, had uh, a couple things happened. One, if there had been weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you know, uh, Bush says himself in his memoir, Decision Points, uh, that this completely undercut the entire rationale for the war in Iraq uh, when they never located the weapons. Um, two, if Bush had resourced the war in the ways in which uh, had been recommended to him um, by folks like General Shinseki, 
folks like Larry Lindsay, the economist, um, and which eventually he did change strategy and send more troops and stabilize the situation in Iraq. But in the interregnum, the situation got so out of control that it, um, I think, uh, not only undermined his presidency disastrously, but also began the shift on the right toward um, uh, restraint, toward um, uh, uh, a renewed realism, toward um, even neo-isolationism in some quarters. So um, uh, there, there's a counterfactual in a variety of directions here. Um, having said all that, I do think even if 9-11 hadn't happened, uh, Saddam Hussein would have been an issue for Bush. Um, and the, the weapons programs, the fact that the sanctions regime uh, was um, coming apart at the seams, there would have been something with regard to Iraq that happened in Bush's first term. Um, but we just don't know what that would have looked like um, absent the 9-11 attacks. The, the the contingency of events for me, uh, I mean, I, 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 I think that's right, that that a lot of that would have happened. I mean, I think the one thing you keep coming back to in the book, uh, and maybe it's it's worth rowing back in the book a little bit before we sort of get to current events, and I do want to talk about foreign policy uh, and, and your opinions about it, because I think here, again, the three of us have interesting uh, overlaps and disagreements. But um, – the, the 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 fascinating thing, which I absolutely agree with, and it's I think it's played a lot of a role in the way of I've looked at, at history is 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 the end of the Cold War and and the disappearance of communism. There's mm-hmm. that um, there's a, I think a very powerful uh, thread that runs through your book that modern conservatism, as uh, as we all know it, as uh, you came up in the institutionalized conservatism. Um, even even as you were coming up uh, in the 90s and, and, and 2000s, um, was shaped by the kind of ideological consensus that the Cold War allowed uh, for conservatives to create, I would say, the appearance of a wide tent, but that really did sort of provide a kind of ideas-based coherence to uh, what were, you know, forces that oftentimes didn't really cohere, right? Mm-hmm. And and that mm-hmm. maybe more so than than something like nine eleven, uh, it's it's the it's the collapse of of communism that that starts wreaking havoc on everything. Is that is that fair to say? Well, nine um, eleven provided a false sense of consensus, I think, for mm-hmm. a few years, right? To re- a, repl- a restored consensus on foreign policy uh, that uh, just didn't last, but. You're absolutely right to point to the centrality of communism in the formation of the post-war conservative movement. And um, communism not only united various factions on the right for different reasons, you know, traditionalists disliked communism's atheism and its war on the mediating institutions between the individual and the state. Libertarians hated communism's centralized economic planning, uh, hawks. Uh, for lack of a better term, uh, thought that the communists prov- uh, in the Soviet Union um, posed a threat to the, to of global dimensions. Um, it was also uh, communism was important in an internal debate on the right about America's attitude toward international involvement. I mean, prior to the Cold War, uh, the right had been. Uh, 
extremely reluctant to be engage America overseas, uh, to intervene in foreign nations, to participate in uh, multilateral institutions and uh, agreements. Um, extremely disinterested in uh, Europe and its politics, much more focused on expansion in Asia and uh, commercial activity in the Pacific. Because of the Cold War, the threat of the communist um, power in the Soviet Union and in China, um, the right began to have a much more hawkish foreign policy to become much more engaged internationally, to believe in a large standing military establishment, to support free trade, uh, to grow the economies um, of uh, our new allies and thus insulate them from communism. Once the Berlin Wall falls in 1989 and the Soviet Union disappears in 1991, uh, that, uh, that kind of structure uh, is all, is, disappears as well. And so you have um, what I think I trace in the book, which is a reversion to the pre-Cold War, pre-World War II American right, uh, where you see it in um, ongoing debates over Ukraine, in debates over tariffs and strategic decoupling, and uh, of course in the general um, uh, opposition to uh, illegal immigration, certainly, but then other forms of legal immigration as well. But so let me just press you on this a little bit. I mean, even to Shadi's earlier question to you about where you're coming from. Um, you know, I, I've been reading you for years. Uh, and, and you know, as a sort of foreign policy hawk, a neoconservative, I, I, I think it's fair to say, uh, would you still identify yourself as, as that in foreign policy inclinations? Or, um, is, you know, uh, is that fair to say? I, or I, I mean, I, with something else. I, no, well, you know, it, de it depends on what you know what that means. I, look, if you take a, a text like um, Charles Krauthammer's uh, 2004 Irving Kristol lecture, Democratic Realism, uh, I probably fall into the Democratic Realist camp, mm -hmm. which is Krauthammer's camp, as opposed to the school that he identifies as Democratic Globalism, which mm -hmm. was he he identified more closely with Robert Kagan. Um, so, you know, uh, is Charles Krauthammer considered a neoconservative? Yes. No, so yeah. I, no. to the degree that I'm in that tradition, I, I suppose I'm a foreign policy one too. I'm des definitely a domestic neoconservative. So sure. yeah, why not? I'll just own it. I'm a neocon. No, no, no. I'm proud of it. Nice. The reason it's interesting to me is, is um, and, and this is where I think Shadi and I, you know, come to blows insofar as we come to blows on a lot of this stuff is, is that, you know, one of the 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 things that that you know, when we talk about communism as a as a unifying other that organizes a lot of this stuff, it also does inject uh, a kind of coherent moral ballast to uh, to foreign policy. And it's interesting that you bring up Krauthammer because yes. I've I've gone back to to you know read the unipolar moment at least several times in the last few years. I've I've, I've find myself drawn back to that essay. And it's mm -hmm. striking to me how he has a certain pragmatism that I think is absent in what I think you're trying to distance yourself from in sort of traditional foreign policy neoconservatism. Um, well, where, yeah. yeah. I mean, it gets to kind of the complications, which is, um, you know, there's Gene Kirkpatrick neoconservatism, and then there's Bob Kagan neoconservatism. And Bob uh, of course, um, spent much of the 90s uh, 
critiquing Kirkpatrick and the earlier foreign policy neoconservatism. So I would say that I'm like, again, I'm probably more a Kirkpatrick Krauthammer neocon, someone who believes in American power, someone who believes in democracy and American power's role in advancing democracy and human rights, uh, but perhaps a little bit more um, circumspect about where exactly uh, military force ought to be applied. But so let me just push you on that, because, again, I think this is where it will be productive with Shadi uh, is is uh, um, stop Demir. is how do we is how do we talk about about um, the role of, I guess, spreading democracy abroad? Um, right. And and and, you know, I mean, the reason I, I to just bring it back to the book um, and even what you guys were talking about, about the the sort of, you know, George W. Bush era and the the sort of, you know, since the Iraq war, the spring back to uh, this kind of more nativist tendency in and uh, among the right, certainly. Uh, but, you know, it has echoes on the left as well. Is is this idea of, I think, um, a sense that that kind of idealism about um, changing the world was overreach. And in many ways that there's a sense that there's a broad reaction against that. And it's not just tied to democracy promotion. We can tie it to basically the whole uh, liberal economic agenda for the world, globalization. I mean, I think you see a reaction against all of that across the world in a lot of ways. But I mean, that's why I think that the, the communism fighting the enemy abroad setting up democracy as a universally exportable and uh, universal good. And there's a lot of reaction against that kind of, um, I don't know, almost reflex that seems to run past the Cold War and past the end of communism um, that then sort of finds its its true, uh, I don't know, culmination in the in the in the in the presidency of Donald Trump. Is that is that fair? Uh I guess I, uh, there's a lot there, yeah. um, but I, I'd say, I guess a couple of things. Um, one is, um, again, as I try to say in the book, the more, um, just to take, say, Walter Russell Mead's terminology, the more Jacksonian and Jeffersonian elements within uh, the American right uh, are longstanding. Um, and uh, if Bush... Um, leaned more heavily toward the Wilsonian, say, uh, he still relied, I think, on Jacksonians uh, <laughs> to uh, to fight the wars, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so why, what happened? Why did, why was the Bush administration's approach to democracy promotion discredited in the eyes of the American right and the, and the public more generally? Um, a couple things. One was uh, the ideas of democracy promotion and human rights became entangled with the military campaigns. So that is, there are two separate concepts, you know, democracy promotion and regime change by American military power. And yet with Bush, they become fused. And um, they become fused because uh, once the weapons were not found, uh, in his 2003 speech to the National Endowment for Democracy, Bush really begins shifting toward we're fighting in Iraq for democracy. Um, and two, the wars uh, did not have satisfactory outcomes. Mm. Um, the the Iraq, uh, many lives were lost, many more were, 
people were wounded. Uh, eventually, some degree of stability was reached, uh, only then to be thrown into chaos again in 2011 when um, American forces were removed. Iraq, uh, Afghanistan goes on for 20 years and then ends in uh, calamity uh, last summer. Um, so uh, the, this association that the wars were somehow about democracy is then um, uh, uh, negatively charged by the unsatisfactory outcomes of those wars. I would look to a, uh, I'd look to a slightly different tradition, which is the Reagan tradition, which is the Reagan Westminster speech, where he talks about how you know democracy promotion is promoting the infrastructure of democracy, and he lists a whole things. He also says democracy is not just elections in that speech, um, and uh, of course Reagan, as I point out in the book, was relatively reluctant, um, certainly to deploy American ground forces. Um, he only did it twice. Uh, once it ended in disaster in Lebanon. And the second time it ended much more successfully, but it was Grenada. Uh, and uh, so he was able to, I think, kind of shepherd or rather um, kind of uh, preserve that uh, 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 democracy promotions uh, uh, good name because it wasn't associated with um, a misadventure. And I've said... Um you know, full disclosure, um, and listeners may be aware of this. I think I've said it before on the podcast. Um, and I say this half jokingly, but there's also a kernel of truth in it that my ideal foreign policy would be the Bush freedom agenda minus the Iraq war. But of course, that complicates matters because it's unclear if there could have been a freedom agenda without mm -hmm. the Iraq war, that in some ways these were these were entangled and you can't really have, you know, you can't fashion. It's almost like saying, well, the, the rock war is a pretty big problem. So it does in some sense discredit a lot of the overall agenda. But I do want to like maybe shift a little bit on this point of why, why conservatives or Republicans would have been skeptical about something like the freedom agenda and what I sense in your throughout your book, and this is something that I took away from it, I don't know if you'd fully agree, there is this sort of darkness in conservative thought. And I mean that, you know, in a positive way, but also in a pejorative way. You can see it um, in, in both senses that there's a profound, I think, skepticism about human nature and what humans are capable of and the dangers of social planning, the dangers of idealistic adventures at home and also abroad. And clearly Bush did not share the latter skepticism. But I think it's it seems to me that it's deeper than that in reading your intellectual history that for the most part, conservatives perceive themselves as culturally weak in American society. They are they are never they never win culture wars, or at least very rarely do they. And they are not really prevalent in elite institutions, whether it's the bureaucracy, universities, the mainstream media, so on and so forth. So there's always a kind of agitation against whatever the status quo happens to be. And this animates the movement. And it, it, it can obviously then spill into a kind of dark view about the way things are because you're always fighting against something which seems very all-encompassing and powerful, which is this kind of 
liberal elite consensus. And I think you note a number of times in the book that this is why conservatives are oftentimes better at arguing than liberals are, because liberals don't really need to defend their ideas because they sort of take liberalism as self-evident that this is simply just what rational, reasonable people come to believe. And so they're just not prepared to actually look at the first principles and analyze the first principles that lead to their own conclusions. Where conservatives, because they're always going against the tide, have to be ready to engage in intellectual combat. combat. But um, so, I mean, some of it's positive, but then you, you know, there is still going to be this sense that everything is going wrong in society, moral degeneration, that America is losing its soul. All of these themes seem to recur time and time again. So I wonder, and I suppose this isn't really a question. Well, it is. it will be a question in a moment, but <laughs> it's more just my analysis. And I'm just curious what you think about it. But one might argue that the kind of um, American carnage inaugural address of Donald Trump in 2017 is the natural... It's a logical conclusion of this sense of being opposed to America as it currently is. And inevitably, you end up at this very dark endpoint. Is there a way to avoid that? Well, um, uh, a couple of things. I mean, I, I would say that uh, the, that's clearly true. Your description is clearly true of the right over the last, say, 15 years. Not so true of the right um, in, you know, in the last uh, 30 years before that. Um, uh, I think there was a sense um, in some ways, uh, 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 even during the Nixon administration, that, you know, the, the right was kind of winning the culture war, that that uh, the right was on the side of the public when it came to issues such as Vietnam or the counterculture or the anti-war movement. Um, I think um, the uh, conservatism of Ronald Reagan, of Newt Gingrich in the 1990s, and of George W. Bush was uh, pretty comfortable with America um, and, and felt that it was... Um, forward-looking, future-oriented, um, basically, you know, uh, not, um, not succumb, ha hadn't succumbed to a declinist, uh, uh, view of America or a, um, the temptations of despair. Um, uh, however, so just having said that, uh, you're right to say that um, conservatism has had um, thinkers and figures who do uh, reach very pessimistic conclusions about the state of American society, about the American character, um, uh, uh, have also scapegoated um, uh, minorities, um, have um, had a, a temptation toward racialist arguments in some cases. I think that the fact that a relevant uh, fact for me is that for much of the post-war moment, so that is the, between the end of the uh, World War II and say, you know, even the, the Bush presidency, George W. Bush's presidency, those elements had been cabined off. 
they had been basically suppressed uh, within the conservative movement and the Republican Party more generally. Um, beginning with George W's second term, which it, just to link it up to our earlier conversation, uh, is connected with the downturn and the war in Iraq and then all the subsequent other disasters that befell the country during Bush's second term. Um, that ability of the conservative movement to kind of uh, to cabin off, to channel and redirect the elements of the American right that have this much more exclusionary, much um, more pessimistic, much more despairing, much more negative attitude toward the country and its citizens uh, collapsed. And so um, it was in the breakup of the um, of this conservative governing class is what I called called it uh, in the book uh, that this pi this picture of the darker American right that you're drawing, Shadi, uh, came into view. So I think there are uh, there have been alternatives, um, but um, because of changes in American society, politics, culture, technology, um, it's just impossible now to somehow uh, erect guardrails uh, within the conservative movement or the Republican Party. But going forward, and I, I take your point that there can't be guardrails and the darker the darker conservatives will be part of the Republican Party going forward. But I, I do wonder that because conservatives are so weak in the culture now, and here I'm talking about um, again, mainstream institutions, not necessarily the Supreme Court and other and, and, and state governments where Republicans still have a strong foothold, obviously. But when it comes to cultural production, it seems that for the foreseeable future, there's no obvious way for Republicans or conservatives to gain ground on cultural issues. So even think about um, the kind of the woke turn in corporations. There is maybe some sense that that's being neutralized a little bit with everything that's going on in Florida with Disney and the backlash. But generally speaking, the trend seems pretty strong that if we're talking about mainstream institutions, they are going to have some sort of liberal bias to one degree or another. And that seems to me to suggest that for the rest of our lives, let's say, that conservatives will all, will see themselves as opposed and in conflict with American culture writ large. And that can only lead to this darker orientation because that's what they're fighting. They see they see America going in this very dark direction, whether it's hyper-wokeness, no longer having clear, um, clear understandings of biology when it comes to uh, trans issue or traditional marriage and so forth. That, I mean, do you feel like, how, how do you get away from that direction if liberals are so culturally dominant? Well, um, and I, I guess for whatever reason, differ from a lot of people on the right on these questions uh, of just how much does the cultural dominance of liberals matter, that, that, that question. Because from a historical point of view, um, in some ways, liberals are less culturally dominant than they were, say, in, I don't know, 1964, 1965. Um, we can't escape the fact that the 
conservative movement has made huge strides in the Republican Party, which had rejected it for about 30 years uh, after the 1932. Um, and in fact, we've gone beyond the conservative movement to the MAGA movement. And now we're going even beyond the MAGA movement to the ultra MAGA uh, people that uh, you see in some of these primaries. So, yeah. uh, so if let's just look at the political institution, I think, uh, and you even mentioned in the, in the States and in the Supreme court, the conservatives do have quite a bit of power. Um, the cultural institutions are a different story. And, uh, but from my point of view, the story really hasn't changed. I, um, you know, William F. Buckley Jr.'s first book published in 1951 was an attack on his alma mater for being too secular and too Keynesian. Um, Alan Bloom wrote The Closing of the American Mind in 1987. Uh, so I think the right has always identified the university as, um, to quote J.D. Vance, quoting Richard Nixon, the enemy. Um, the liberal media hmm. uh, has been a... Uh, right boogeyman since act the aftermath of the 1964 election when the post-war conservative movement looked at the media's treatment of Barry Goldwater, calling him a Nazi, calling him a psychopath, and said, we won't be able to make any progress if we don't somehow critique the media and lessen its hold. I mean, just, you know, I, I always get in trouble with my conservative friends when I say this, but just as an empirical fact, the right has such a, a, a loud voice today compared with the situation in 1964, right? I mean, the unbundling of media, the fact that talk radio exists, uh, it's a you know, product of a regulatory decision in the late 1980s, the fact of Fox News, and now, of course, all of the mega and ultra mega alternatives to Fox News, the fact that the most uh, dynamic Facebook posts are almost entirely those of conservatives um, can't be ignored. So, and then finally, so why are just, they so angry? Okay, through I, mean, so then <laughs> I don't, I mean, so I'll, I'll, I, they, one, th one reason is Shadi, they don't know the history. Okay. That's what mm. you, we, we started by asking, why did I write the book? One reason I wrote the book was that despite people saying they know the history in broad numbers, many younger conservatives in particular don't know the history. They think history began in 2012 or began in 2016, right? That's just not the case. These are long running arguments and critiques of American cultural institutions. Um, just finally on the K through 12 point, I mean, I do think, uh, so here's another reason why they're angry. Uh, there's, uh, there is, there was complacency in the conservative movement. There's no question about that. Um, that was visible, um, uh, uh, beginning again, going back to George W's second term, you could already see with the movement of the reform conservatives and more elite driven intellectual attempt to revive conservative thought. Um, with the, the Tea Party provided populist energy, but the Republican Party as an institution and many conservative elites did not read what they wanted to in the Tea Party. They were they were willing to to use it, but they didn't really um, understand what was what was motivating it. And there was a great space that emerged between Beltway conservatives, of whom I am one, and uh, people in the populist grassroots conservatives throughout the rest of the country. And um, that um, that cocoon 
in D.C., I think, uh, blinded a lot of people to what was happening. It also failed. It also prevented us from communicating, you know, just the nature of these problems and how long running they are and how, you know, this goes in waves um, and that even now we're beginning to fight back. I mean, I, I think that you just look, we mentioned DeSantis, we mentioned, uh, we haven't mentioned Glenn Youngkin. I think that, I think that their uh, conservatives are winning some of these battles now that they're engaged um, on, on, uh, on the woke curricula stuff. So whenever I say this, it always gets me in trouble <laughs> with conservatives because they're like, you don't realize how bad it is. I understand that it's bad, but I think, I guess it's always been bad. Maybe that's what makes me a conservative. That's it for the main episode. Become a paying member at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to access the rest of the conversation. We push Matt hard on populism, the future of the right in America, and whether the GOP is still committed to democracy. See you in the bonus.